0: If you have your Bible, you can open it up to Luke chapter (laughs) 8. Luke chapter 8, verses 49 to 56. If you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you, you should find that on page 732. 732. When was the last time that God surprised you? He surprised me a lot of times, uh, like when I went to college to become a, a wealthy engineer, and I graduated feeling called to become a poor missionary instead. Or when I went to Hungary to bring the light, uh, to bring the light to those who had been living in communist darkness, and I found that this mission turned out to be more about how I needed to change and grow than about what I could offer to anyone else. Or like the time I moved to Washington, D.C. in my mid-20s, and I sized up the social scene there, and uh, I said, you know, there's no women here that I'd ever be interested in. And uh, two years later, I found myself proposing to a Washingtonian. (laughs) Or like when I felt sure in my late 20s that... um, If I ever had a family of my own, it would be a small one, and children were still a long way off. And yet, by the time I was 30, I was a father of the first of three more to come. God is full of surprises, and that's what today's story is about. Let's take a look. Remember from last week that Jesus had taken his disciples on a training trip. Uh, He's about to send them out to participate in his mission. We'll see that next week in chapter 9. But before he sends them out, he demonstrates his power for them on this trip in three amazing and surprising ways. First, he calms the raging seas, something that only God has the power to do. Second, then he overpowers and casts out a whole legion of evil spirits, demonstrating that he has the ultimate and decisive authority over every dark and evil power. Not surprisingly, in both of these two cases, those who witness this unexpected power are astounded, they're amazed, and they're utterly afraid. That sort of reaction, we'll see, is going to continue in today's story. As third, Jesus returns with his disciples from their hair-raising encounter on the far side of the lake and um, exerts his power once again. Over there, on the other side of the lake, Jesus had been among Unclean tombs and unclean Gentiles and unclean pigs and unclean spirits now here They're back in their comfort zone among their own Jewish people And the first person they meet is an upstanding synagogue leader named Jairus Jairus couldn't be more different than the demonized man they had recently encountered Jairus is powerful he's reputable he's respected he's probably wealthy And yet, just like the demonized man, when Jairus finds Jesus, he throws himself at Jesus' feet. Why? Because as we're about to find out, Jairus is desperate, and so he's willing to humble himself before Jesus. It just goes to show that while Luke insists that Jesus has come to bring salvation to the poor and to the needy, and to bring down the rich and the powerful from their lofty places— Yet we shouldn't be too quick to judge who in God's eyes might be poor and needy. In Jairus' case, he's so desperate because his only child, a daughter of 12, is dying. I suspect that in that culture, which has not a lot of respect for children, 12 must have been just about the most tragic age for a girl to die because she's just about to finally become someone. In that culture, a girl had no place, no social standing until she got married and then became a mother. And so most girls looked forward to, to that day with with longing and and uh, for many at that time, an engagement and marriage would begin at about 12 or 13. And so for this girl and for her parents with her, her hopes for, for the life ahead of her are like a lamp suddenly been snuffed out. And with them for Jairus, the, the light of his life. With his his only daughter on the brink of death, his wife and he are now facing the prospect of of entering old age alone and childless in a culture which was all about family. And so for this man, though he's he's very religious, though though he's risen to the most prominent position his community has to offer. His religiosity and his wealth and his power can do nothing to help him. He's helpless. He's desperate. And so when he finds Jesus, Jairus throws himself at his feet and he begs for help. He's no doubt heard that Jesus is a healer and and he hopes that Jesus can heal his dying daughter before it's too late. And Jesus agrees to go and heal the child. Can you imagine the hope, maybe the relief that begins to rise in Jairus' heart? Perhaps he's been looking for Jesus for some time as his daughter was getting sicker and sicker. Rumor was that Jesus had headed off across the lake in a boat with his disciples. And um, who knows when he's coming back? And so Jairus joins the crowd that's waiting, and, and all they can do is to wait and wait when Jesus might come back. And, and for Jairus, this waiting must have been excruciating. Would, would Jesus get back in time? Would, would he be able? Would he be willing to help? And, and now, yes, Jairus has, has found Jesus in time, it seems, and Jesus is willing to come with him. And right there, Luke breaks off the story, leaving us in suspense. As Jesus heads off to the house of, of, of uh, the. Uh, or off with the head of of the synagogue ruler Jairus to his house, uh, Luke turns our attention to the crowds which are swarming around Jesus, threatening to crush him, no doubt impeding his progress. You can just imagine Jairus jumping up and down impatiently, at least on the inside, trying to hurry Jesus along, trying unsuccessfully to shove the crowd aside. Interestingly, the word Luke uses in verse 42 when he says the crowds almost crushed Jesus is the same word Jesus used earlier in the chapter when he told the parable of the sower and the four soils. It's translated choked in that parable. It describes the way that life's worries and riches and pleasures are like thorns which choke out God's Word in our lives, and so so in, some interpreters wonder if there's a note of, of something ominous or negative in this crowd. Well, in the next verse, Luke focuses us in, and he tells us that there's an impure woman in this crowd, a woman who should not be in a crowd, who shouldn't be around other people. You see, this woman is unclean, and according to the Jewish scriptures, her uncleanness spreads to anyone she touches making them ritually defiled before God too. To be unclean is to be, able, is to be unable to come into God's presence or to be among God's people. And this woman is unclean because she's bleeding. According to Leviticus 15, when a woman has her monthly flow of blood, she's unclean, and anyone she touches is unclean. Only this woman, Luke tells us, has been bleeding for 12 years. Unclean for 12 years. Unable to touch or to be embraced for 12 years. Unable to go to the temple to worship God among God's people for 12 years. For as many years as Jairus' daughter has been alive, this woman has been suffering as an outcast. Most interpreters feel that this woman is not married could not be married no jewish man would marry her in this condition and if she had been married her husband would have most probably divorced her long ago she's probably completely alone cut off luke says no one could heal her mark's gospel adds that she's already spent all she had on doctors so she's impoverished she's alone she's outcast from society cut off from god rejected Existing on the margins. And yet, here she comes now into the middle of this crowd, pressing in, crushing Jesus. And then this woman touches Jesus. She touches him. She makes him unclean. On purpose, she touches him. It's a premeditated act. This should not be. Not only should this woman stay away from the crowd, stay away from other people, but to sneak up to a Jewish man and touch him, making him unclean. This is like sneaking up to a, a businessman in a, in, a, in a silk suit in a crowd and cracking a rotten egg over his back. It's selfish, it's presumptuous, it's nasty. But of course this woman thinks she can get away with it in a crowd. Because everyone's touching him and so hopefully he won't even notice she somehow hopes that if if she touches him somehow she'll be healed. She knows Jesus is a healer she knows there's power in him and somehow she hopes that she can reach out secretly and steal some of that power. So she's not only selfish and inconsiderate and nasty she's also a thief. Like like a 'er ne'er-do-well neighbor who secretly splices in and runs a cable through the alley to steal the cable reception you pay for. (laughs) This woman is trying to steal power from Jesus without asking, without his knowing it. But she doesn't succeed at doing it secretly, at least. Because instantly when she touches him, Jesus senses that power has gone out from him. He stops in his tracks He looks around. Who touched me? He demands. Of course, everyone thinks he's being unreasonable. Unreasonable. What do you mean who touched you? Peter says, everyone is touching you. And everyone, including this woman, denies it. But Jesus insists, no, somebody touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. And this woman realizes she's been caught. Caught touching people, being in a crowd, making them all unclean worse caught touching a jewish man making him impure on purpose and stealing god's power in the process and and now she's being called out right in front of the synagogue ruler and everyone else too no wonder that she comes trembling scared humiliated and like jairus before her and the demonized man before him this woman too falls at Jesus' feet Only this time, Luke uses the Greek word for worship. That's our, our first hint that there may be a surprise in this story. In the Bible, worship is literally to fall down or to fall at the feet of the one that you worship. And that's what this woman does. Because you see, not only is this woman no doubt scared to death and totally ashamed, but she also knows something that no one else knows. And that is that, the moment she touched Jesus, her bleeding stopped. Maybe that gives her a tiny shot of courage. And so she throws herself at Jesus' feet in worship, not knowing what to expect, and gives her testimony. That's a great way to worship, by the way, to tell the story of what God has done for you, or one of the stories. She, she confesses to the whole crowd how she was unclean, how, how nobody else could help, how she had no hope and how she thought maybe Jesus could heal her, and so she sneaked up, and and yes, she touched him, and the moment she did, instantly she was healed. She tells this story, and then she waits to see what will happen next. Perhaps a scolding, perhaps a tongue lashing, a public humiliation, perhaps even some sort of punishment from Jesus or from the synagogue ruler. But instead, what does she receive from Jesus? She receives good news. Good news. That's the first big surprise in this story for this woman. First, Jesus calls her daughter. She's once again a daughter in Israel. She's clean again. She's been accepted. She's been welcomed home. She once again belongs among God's people. And in fact, she's now a daughter in God's family. Wow, the girl who had lived 12 years and is just now reaching womanhood may be Jairus' daughter. But this woman who has bled for 12 years of her womanhood is now called Jesus' daughter. Second, Jesus assures her that her faith has saved her. Some of the newer translations like the NIV say that her faith has healed her. But the Greek word is literally the word saved. Often in the Gospels about Jesus, English Bibles translate that word saved as healed or cured or restored. And that's because part of what the salvation is that Jesus brings is to heal the sick and to free the captives and to restore the broken. And so this woman has been saved by Jesus. Why? Because of her incredible faith. And that's our surprise. What looks on the surface to to be this woman's selfishness and her presumption and even her thievery is in Jesus' eyes nothing less than faith. From Jesus' perspective, any broken, lonely, desperate woman with enough courage and hope to join a crowd when she should stay off by herself and to touch a Jewish man when she should stay away and to grab for a portion of God's power when she should ask nicely and wait politely, any woman like this has enough faith to be saved. Can you believe it? What the world might denounce or even punish as selfish presumption Jesus counts as saving faith. How great is your faith in Jesus? Enough to break some rules or some expectations? Enough to grab for God's power without politeness or even permission? This woman, this woman's act seems sinful. It seems unseemly. It seems irrelevant—or sorry, irreverent—to the people around her. But Jesus loves it. He loves people with this kind of faith. And so third, he tells this woman to go in peace. He has no hard feelings. He's not going to rebuke her or embarrass her. He just wishes her well, and he sends her off with his blessing. She's now been really saved. Sure, she had been healed physically the moment she touched Jesus, But she still needed a deeper, fuller healing. She had just, or had she just sneaked home undetected to her lowly hovel after she touched Jesus, her her body would have been whole and her ritual purity would have been restored. But where would she be? Who would she have had to rejoice with or to tell what had really happened? Who would have believed her? And, And... and what would they have said if she told them that she'd stolen her blessing by touching a man and making him unclean? And what about her conscience, her own conscience, and the guilt of what she had done? No, Jesus wanted her to come out in the open before all the people, to, to tell her story right there uh, where, where all could see and all could believe in, in that it was really true and, and that they could all marvel with her. And then she could be restored to her community right there. And with Jesus pronouncing her salvation and commending her faith and then sending her off with his blessing and acceptance. She's a daughter of God now. She has been fully healed. You know, that's often the way that Jesus wants to heal us. He wants to take our healing a lot deeper than the surface problem that we're concerned about. Uh, You see, Jesus knew back then what the scientific community is recognizing now, and that is that we're psychosomatic holes. That, that, (laughs) that lonely, not holes, holes. (laughs) (laughs) They're recognizing that loneliness can suppress your immune system. That relational problems can can make you more likely to get sick. That stress can affect your health, and so can guilt. And, And so, that family member that you can't forgive, that dark secret that you can never tell. Those may need healing even more than the arthritis you're suffering with. And in fact, they may be indirectly contributing to it. And and Jesus knows that. And so the healing that he wants to bring is a complete healing. It involves your spirit, our spirit. It involves our emotions and our memories. It involves our relationships as well as our bodies. Well, with that said, we're jolted back to the first story, to poor Jairus and his dying daughter. At that moment, a messenger arrives from Jairus' house bringing the devastating news. While Jesus was fighting through the crowd and while he was detained by this, unclean woman who was stealing her salvation the synagogue ruler's daughter's life was expiring and now it's too late she's dead can you imagine the religious leaders devastation the the desperate worry about his daughter his urgent panicked seeking to find jesus before it was too late then he'd found him and hope was reborn but the crowd couldn't move fast enough. And, and, and then this impure woman came and she stole Jesus away. She distracted him. She stopped his progress. And now it's too late. Th- that unclean woman got her miracle, but, but this religious leader won't get his. It's too late for his daughter. She slipped beyond reach. It's too late for him and for his family. There will be no miracle. In Jairus's house and so all he can do now is return home empty-handed empty-hearted to a house of death there's no sense Jesus coming he's already been touched by one unclean person and now by Old Testament regulations Jairus's house is unclean too with a dead corpse in it no need to bother Jesus anymore to expose him to any more uncleanness But here comes the second surprise, right, (laughs) that Jesus has in store. Jesus has a way of coming into contact with what is unclean, and instead of being corrupted, contaminated by it, Jesus has a way of transforming it and making it clean again instead. He looks at the grieving, crestfallen father, and he says, Don't be afraid. Just believe. Your daughter will be saved. Again, not healed as the NIV has it, but saved. So listen to this first story, daughter, your faith has saved you. Second story, have faith, believe, and your daughter will be saved. Do you see the connection? Jesus is appealing to this religious leader, this head of his synagogue, and challenging him to have the same faith that the lowly, despised, unclean woman had. She's got to be his teacher. She's his example to emulate. If he can have as much faith as she has, then his daughter will be saved like she was. Well, by the time they arrive at the house, his daughter has been dead for a while. The paid mourners, as was common in that culture, have already arrived. They're doing their thing. The funeral traditions have already begun. But Jesus is going to show up and ruin this funeral. Everyone is wailing and and mourning and, and Jesus calls out to them, stop. Stop it. Stop wailing. She's not dead, only asleep. Can you imagine? <laughs> you're at the viewing. The loved one is in the casket at the front. People are sobbing, sobbing softly. And, and suddenly a stranger shows up and he blurts out, Stop crying, everyone. <laughs> She's not dead. She's only sleeping. And after you get over the shock, you're like, Are the funeral workers going to call security to get this lunatic out of here? But Jesus takes the parents and and three of his closest disciples, James, John, Peter, and they go to where this dead girl is. And Jesus touches the unclean corpse, the dead daughter. He takes her by the hand, and he says, child, get up. And her spirit returns to her, and at once she gets up. Surprise! (laughs) Surprise! Jesus has the power to surprise us. Jesus has the power not only over the dark forces of nature, the chaos symbolized by the sea, and power not only over the dark spirits who who haunt this world and oppress and enslave us, and power not only over the uncleanness which separates us from God and from our community, but Jesus also has the ultimate power, the power over death itself. And so this daughter of 12 wakes up again to a whole life, the whole life that's before her in her day, her culture, a wife, a mother, as a daughter in Israel. And her parents, of course, are astonished. And Jesus says something really practical uh, and at the same time healing. Give her something to eat. She's alive again. She's not just, it's not just her spirit that's alive. She's not just a ghost. She's your flesh and blood own daughter, your own beloved girl. You are a family and no more funerals. Have a family meal instead. Give your daughter something to eat. And all the bewildered mourners and the other family and friends just kind of pack up and go home. Wow. Wow. Take a moment, step back, look at Jesus. He has the power to heal, the power to save. This powerful king we follow into mission is full of surprises for those who have faith. And Jesus isn't looking for a particularly respectable faith or a particularly religious faith. He's just looking for some sort of desperate, Hopeful, eager, even reckless faith. A willingness to reach out and grab hold of him. A willingness to be surprised. We don't know exactly how or when Jesus will heal. But what we do know is that Jesus has the power to do it power over the chaos, power over evil forces which hold us captive, power over uncleanness and impurity. And power even over death. More than that, in Jesus we see a great willingness, a great compassion. Jesus isn't concerned with whether you're worthy, whether he doesn't give you a a quiz to see if you deserve it. You may be a respected religious leader or a rejected unclean nobody. Jesus is just waiting to see whether you'll reach out to him in faith and grab hold and let him surprise you. Saving, healing, setting free, that's his mission. That's why he's come. And as we'll see as the story of Luke continues, that's what he entrusts to his followers. That kind of power, that kind of compassion to go out and to proclaim his salvation to all who will listen and to share his healing, to share his salvation with any who will believe. So here's what I've been learning from Jesus. I've been learning uh, to pray for people differently in two ways. The first one, um, as I've already mentioned, is to pray for a broader, more holistic healing than just what people are specifically asking for prayer for. I remember this past summer, my mom had Lyme disease and it really flattened her on her back. She was really suffering with it. And when we got the news, we started praying for her healing. And a number of other people did too, were praying for her. And the next day, um, she calls me to tell me about this amazing dream that she had Um, and these memories that it brought up and about some hurts that she'd experienced in her past. Um, and about how as she, she was praying about this after this dream, she was finding healing in her heart from some of those hurts. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> now, I'm not suggesting that, that the Lyme was caused by those emotional wounds, but, but rather that when a lot of people started begging the great physician to put his healing hands on my mom, that that Jesus knew that as a part of her healing at that moment, he needed to touch some other places besides just the lime. Second, I've been learning to pray bolder prayers. Because sometimes we who claim to believe in Jesus hardly believe at all. And and so we pray these nice little safe prayers uh, so Jesus doesn't embarrass himself or us. Oh, Jesus, you know, help so-and-so's illness, help them to feel a teeny bit better. Um, And so it's like we lob this nice, easy softball to Jesus just to make sure he can't miss. But how is Jesus going to glorify himself that way? He invites us instead to reach out boldly, almost recklessly, like the bleeding woman did, so that he can show himself to be great. And and I've been trying to do this especially to pray this way um, as I pray for those who don't know Jesus. Jesus. Um, if they mention a, a problem or an issue, I've been making it a point to, to offer to pray for them right there and then to pray boldly. Um, and I can give you an example from this church. A, a few years back, one of our people had a friend who was interested in learning more about Jesus. And, and this person and I were meeting with her to help introduce her to Jesus. And um, then she got this sudden and unexpected expense um, that came up that she, she couldn't cover. It was well over $10,000. And, and we prayed for her about it. We prayed that God, in some miraculous way, would, would take care of it for her. And, and within a day or two, almost miraculously, a way came up for her to get the money to cover this. Um, and we were able to say to her, see, Jesus is real. We, he answered that prayer that we, we, we asked, you know, Jesus to take care of. He cares for you. And she said, yeah, Wow. <laughs> But we're going to worship now, Um, and as we do, maybe there's something that you need healing for or that you need to be set free of. Um, And so as we sing, um, I I invite you to cry out to Jesus, to to reach out like the bleeding woman did. And if you'd like some help doing that after the service, there'll be a few people up in the front here who would be happy to pray with you and for you about those things. Let's continue to reach out to Jesus.